ten years ago was a different time. The economy was booming, 401ks were solid, and if asked, eight out of ten Americans wouldn't be able to define the word jihad. On that day, ten years ago, something happened that changed everything. Ten years ago was a Tuesday. For most of us, our only connection to the events of that day was what we saw on television. However, we are all connected, and that we all have a place. For some of us, it's a spot on the highway. For others, it's in an office or a coffee with a friend. It's the place we will never forget. The place where we watched it happen ten years ago. So here we are, ten years later, still hurt, still angry, still trying to understand why. First Corinthians 13 explains that we don't see things clearly right now. In essence. We just won't be able to understand in this lifetime things like what happened ten years ago. However, it goes on to say that one day we will see all things clearly. But until that day comes, we have three things to embrace to help us in our reconciliation: faith in God, unswerving hope, and love. And the greatest of the three. Is love. Through the shock and the horror, something else happened ten years ago. Although the evil intentions appeared to be a success, our country embraced the complete opposite of what was intended. Instead of division, there was unity. Instead of confusion, there was clarity. And instead of falling apart. We banded together, but then again, that's the way one nation under God will always respond. We want to say to those families who have loved ones overseas. I know the Belanges have two sons, Andrew and Nathan. Who are in harm's way? Farron's husband is there, and we just want to honor you guys and appreciate you for your sacrifice for us. But for those who are public servants and families of public servants, I know Davy Ellis's son is a sergeant with the sheriff's department, and others I can't think of right now. And Ralph is a volunteer fireman, and. Uh, we have other full-time firemen that go to church here. We just salute you guys. Appreciate what you do to help keep us safe and secure. Thank you so much. We live in a dangerous world that doesn't make sense. Probably, as you watch the video, you were reminded of where you were when you heard the news. This building wasn't under construction yet, but the project was well underway, and I was at the FINA station, which is now just a Tommy's. 
right down here a mile away on the corner, and the news was on, and we all saw it when the first plane hit. And I remember that very well. I remember a year later we were in Austin, Texas at the Capitol late at night at a worship service praying for our nation. And so in view of those memories, I just want to say it doesn't make sense of it. It doesn't make sense. As the video went to 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Now we see in a mirror dimly. The context is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, talking about love sandwiched in between spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts we have give us insight. They give us discernment. They give us revelation. They don't give us everything. They don't often fill in the blanks, but thank God for the gifts that the Lord does give us for insights and understanding. One day perfection is coming when we'll know everything and it will all make perfect sense. But right now, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a glass darkly. Or the New King James says, Now we see in a mirror dimly. But one day we'll see face to face. Now I just know in part. But then I shall know just as I also am known. Now abide. And here's three secure, sure things. Faith hope, and love. Those three things came under attack. To take away our faith, to take away our hope, and to turn us against one another and take away our love. These three abide. No one can take them from us. And the greatest of these is love. Can you say love is the greatest? Love is great. Love is the greatest. Love is the greatest virtue. Love is the greatest motivator. Love is the greatest need in the world. And love is the greatest witness of God's people. In a moment, Pastor Shake's going to sing to us the song, I think it's 35 years old, Love's in Need of Love Today. Who would agree? Love really needs to have love today. A lot of the love we see in the world is not love. It's a very self-centered thing. There's a hormone, I think it's called oxytocin, scientists were experimenting with, thinking it generated love. And so if we could put this in our food, we'd have a whole lot more love in the world. And what they discovered is it increased the feelings of love, but only the feelings of love for your own kind. It didn't help with prejudices and racism. It just increased the feelings of love for your own kind. It it created self-centeredness is what it did. And so it's not a chemical problem in the world. It is a spiritual problem. Jay, come right on and sing us that song, Love's in Need of Love, to kick the sermon off.
Thank you. We need more love in the world than ever before, and certainly in the church. Amen. While our nation is at war militarily, we're at war spiritually. The enemy of our souls would love for us to come to hate and revenge and violence and tear down all the mosques and persecute all the Muslims and believe that they're all our enemies and I don't want to be naive here, but some things you can do just make the problems worse, right? We certainly don't want to become like those who have attacked us and become a nation of injustice. I have some good news. Our daughter's engaged to, to a gentleman named Paul Okimoto, whose father is a third-generation American immigrant from Japan. So his 
father's grandfather came here to this country and had a son, and then his son had a son, which is Paul Okamoto. And I asked Paul about his family. Paul's mother is French-Canadian, and so they're going to add some color to the family. It's going to be wonderful. I asked Paul about his family's experience during World War II because if you remember what happened, Pearl Harbor was bombed and we became as a nation suspicious of all Japanese people and gathered them up because they might be spies and put them in internment camps. I asked Paul about that and he said, yes, that's a black eye on the history of America. He said when they got out of those camps, when the war was over, they went home to find their homes destroyed, burned, or emptied out. They had to basically start over from nothing. And it was very little reparation efforts ever made in their communities because of all the prejudice that has arisen during the war. It's just America was, a, in a sense, a dumber country then than it is now. I hate to say that. It was just unfortunate. And, of course, the Japanese are industrious people, and the Japanese-Americans bounced back. But thank God that we're not doing that kind of thing again. We don't want to return to that kind of operation. Love is the greatest need in the world. It's the greatest witness of God's people. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by your love. Chapter 13 ends with this verse, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. The very next verse is chapter 14. You know, chapters and verses were put in there later after it was written. The very next sentence begins with these words, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Sometimes we get it backwards. People pursue a blessing, they pursue spiritual gifts, and wish they were more loving. But we are to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, verse 14 says, Let all that you do be done with love. Galatians 5, 6 ends with these words. What is important, in the New Living Translation says, What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Verse 13 of Galatians 5 tells us, Through love serve one another, for the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, chapter 1, verse 9 of the letter to the Philippians. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more. To the Colossians he said, But above all things, chapter 3, verse 14, put on love which is the bond of perfection. He told Timothy in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 5, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. He told him in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God has given us of his love, We need to receive it. The Bible says the Holy Spirit pours the love of God abroad in our hearts. We need to receive more of the love of God than we've ever received before so that it can heal our hearts, heal our souls, and renew our minds, and so that it can flow out from our lives to help others. Can I get an amen? Love is the greatest. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 4. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, 
that have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Last Sunday we spoke on love suffers long. Now I'd like to transition to love is kind. Can we say love is kind? I recommend every couple to go through this sometime in your marriage. Sooner the better. It's a little book related to the movie. It's not the story from the movie. It's the devotional used in the movie called The Love Dare. It's a 40-day devotional. It contains 40 definitions of the word love. Each day is a different definition of the word love. And at the end of that little devotional, it's just a few paragraphs about that definition on love. At the end of that devotional is an assignment. Now go out and be kind for 24 hours. And the concept behind it is if you can be kind for 24 hours, maybe you can do it again and develop your walk in love stronger. If you mess up and you can't make it 24 hours without being unkind to someone, then the next day do that chapter again. So for some of us, the 40 days may become, as in my case, 90 days. Love suffers long and is kind. This is what the Love Dare book has to say. It says, kindness is love in action. If patience or long-suffering is how love reacts in order to minimize a negative circumstance, kindness is how love acts to maximize a positive circumstance. Patience avoids a problem. Kindness creates a blessing. One is preventative, the other proactive. These two sides of love are the cornerstones on which the other attributes of love are built. Love will make you kind. When you're kind, people will want to be around you. They see you as being good to them and good for them. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Kind people... Simply find favor wherever they go, even at home. When you're operating from kindness, you're careful. Never being unnecessarily harsh. You're sensitive. You're tender. You speak the truth in love. Being kind means you meet the needs of the moment. Kindness inspires us to be agreeable. We will look for reasons to accommodate when we're kind. Kindness thinks ahead and then takes the first step. The kind will be the one first to serve. When acting from kindness, you see the need, and then you make your move. So last Sunday we spoke on love is patient. Patience helps you deal with the unfortunate or the undesirable things that have happened. Patience will help you not to be unkind. Whereas kindness is proactive. Kindness will cause you to look for an opportunity to do good rather than waiting. Patience kind of You don't need any patience unless there's a cause to be impatient. Kindness doesn't just happen, but kindness is an opportunity that we can take advantage of when we see the opportunity to serve someone. The Greek word for kindness is the word kreistuomai, which means to show yourself useful. It means to act benevolently. It means to show yourself as mild, to be kind. It means to use kindness. It's rooted in the word Christos, not Christos, but Christos, which means to be employed, to be useful, 
to be better, to be good, to be gracious, to be fit for use, to be pleasant, to be opposed to being harsh, hard, sharp, or bitter. Kindness is a useful thing. Who could use some kindness? A key to being kind is to put yourself in someone else's shoe. Proverbs 19.22 says, What is desired in a man is kindness. We say that. What is desired in a man is kindness. Proverbs 31, talking about the Proverbs 31 woman, says she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. In other words, kindness will govern what you say. The word kindness in the regular dictionaries is the practice of being sympathetic and compassionate. Kindness is an act that shows consideration and caring. The synonyms for kindness are gentleness, benevolence, thoughtfulness, consideration, and helpfulness. Kindness. Love is kind. Paul told the church in Ephesus, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Tell your neighbor, be kind. Be kind and rewind. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Peter wrote in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 5, Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Being kind. One thing Yvette and I work on in our marriage is being kind to one another. We'll just be kind. That helps a whole lot of conflict. Being kind. The word kind means to be predisposed to do good to others, to make them happy by meeting their needs and helping them in their distresses, to be prone to show kindness or favor. I have a question. Have you ever been kind to someone and felt like you were taken advantage of? That's what being kind is. It's helping someone even though they may not help you. Many times, people who are in need don't realize how deep the hole is that they're in. They do not know how deep in trouble they are. And so when you set out to help them, they're just looking for a handout, and you're wanting to give them a hand. Before you know it, you are way more obligated than you realize. I mean, I left the church the other day to help a guy who needed a ride from the hospital to his hotel room. Five hours later... I was free. He didn't need to stay in the hotel. He needed to reconcile with his in-laws. They had a place for him to live and a job. So we helped him. But in reality, we can get ourselves in such messes, we don't realize how big the mess is. Now, I could have given him some money to pay for a motel room for another night. And all I'd be doing sounds kind of like the government. It's kicking the can further on down the road for somebody else to deal with. But I really wanted to help the guy. And so you can give a hand out and get him, you know, get him off your conscience, but somebody sooner or later is going to have to do it. Now, what is being kind? 
Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite speakers, who happens to pastor a church in Manhattan, he says, in a real world of relationships, it is impossible to love people with a need without, in some sense, sharing in their need, even changing places with them for a while. All real, life-changing love involves some form of exchange. He says, imagine you come into contact with someone who is innocent, but he's being hunted down by some powerful group. It could be the mafia or some, you know, some group, gangsters or something. And he reaches out to you for help. If you don't help him, he'll probably die. But if you do help him, you who once were safe and secure could now be in danger. It's him or you. He will experience increased safety and security through your involvement, but only if you're willing to enter into his insecurity. You've got to give up some of your security to help someone in their insecurity. This is what Jesus did for us. He came down to our level and shared in our suffering. Consider parenting. Children come into the world totally dependent. They cannot operate as independent agents unless their parents give up their own freedom for years. If you don't allow your children to hinder your freedom in work and play, and if you only help them when it's absolutely necessary and it doesn't inconvenience you, both things being equal, your children will grow up physically but not emotionally, and they will not be independent persons. They'll be very dependent. They'll be dependent on the government. They'll be dependent on the man who has the keys to their jail cell, (laughs) and all sorts of other ways they'll remain emotionally needy trouble because some parent wouldn't give up their independence so that they could become independent. Does that make sense? The choice is clear. We can either sacrifice our freedom or rob them of theirs. To love your child well, you must decrease so they can increase. You must be willing to enter into the dependency they have so eventually they can experience the freedom and independence you have. And there is a point in time where you begin to back off and not be the helicopter mama, rescuing them out of every situation. You're the kind of mother that gets involved in every fight that your kid's in. That's not good. Not teaching your children to reconcile. So there's a time to pull back and let them... Wipe their own selves. You know what I'm saying. Keller closes with these words. All life-changing love toward people with serious needs is going to be a substitutional sacrifice. If you become personally involved with them in some way, their weaknesses will flow to you as your strengths flow to them. How can God be a God of love if he does not become personally involved in suffering the same violence, oppression, grief, weakness, and pain that we experience? The answer to that question is twofold. First of all, God cannot be a God of love without entering in to our problems. And secondly, there's only one major religion in the world that even claims that God does. Christianity. He did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but could have everlasting life. His son came to experience our sufferings. He came down to our level to help us. You know, there's many times you can't clean something without getting dirty. Right? You can't sterilize something without becoming unsterile. I mean, it's just the way it is. You get down in the ditches of people's needs if you're going to be kind. So may the Lord give us strength in handling those emotions that come to us 
to say, man, don't help anybody again. All people will do is burn you. The point is they don't know how big their problems really are. And if you're really going to help them, sometimes it's got to be more than what they're asking for. Lord, I just pray that this word would sink deep in our hearts, that we would be challenged and encouraged to be kind when the opportunities reveal themselves. In Jesus' name, Lord, let us be a church and a people and a collection of families who are in love with you and the opportunity to be kind. Lord, I pray you bless every home, that you help us, Lord, to be kind for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Bible is an amazing story from the life of King David. King David was anointed king while another king was still in power. And King David had to wait till that other king who was named King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he greatly displeased the Lord, and so the Lord was going to replace him. And he appointed David to be that replacement. And as God usually does things, he prepares a man, he anoints a man before he appoints the man. And so David was anointed. He hadn't yet been appointed. And so in the wake of that, Saul is still ruling and reigning. Eventually it led to his destruction. But Saul had a son named Jonathan who became friends with David, even though David would one day take the throne and not Jonathan. I mean, this is pretty unusual. David made a covenant with Jonathan, pledging to watch out for his, and Jonathan pledged the same for him. And over the years that came to pass that Jonathan died in the same battle his father died in. And so David became king. After ruling for a few years, you can look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked this question, is there anyone from the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And they found a servant who had been a servant in Saul's cabinet or Saul's reign named Ziba. And Ziba appeared and says, I'm at your service. And the king said, is there anyone of the household of Saul to whom I can show the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now, Jonathan was a young man at this time. When he was five years old is when his father and grandfather died. And the woman responsible for him panicked. Because generally when a, especially in primitive times, when a king dies, the new king comes in and wipes out the whole royal family so they don't come back to haunt him. And so the nurse wanting to protect this this little boy named Mephibosheth said, we've got to leave the castle. We've got to leave our residence here, and we've got to run and hide. Otherwise, they're going to destroy us and destroy this little boy. And in her panic, she fell and dropped the kid and either dislocated his feet or broke his bones. Anyway, in the long run, when his, when his body healed, he was a crippled from that day on. So his crippled effect was related to fear, was related to sorrow and death. And so David didn't really know about him until one day his heart was touched. Hey, I need to see if there's anybody I can show kindness to in the household of Saul. And Ziba said there is Mephibosheth. Verse 4 of Second Samuel 9, the king says to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Mecher, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. The word Lodabar means no name. 
So here he is crippled and hiding out in a no-name place. Pretty sad existence. King David sent and brought him out of the house and brought him to his house. When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, here is your servant. You know, he's figuring it's all over, man. The king's found me. He's going to kill me. David said to him, do not fear. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. Because of the relationship he had with Jonathan, Mephibosheth was going to be blessed. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? I mean, this guy just couldn't receive the blessing. He couldn't believe it was real. Verse 11, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. He made him one of his own. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. So sitting at the table with the princes of the kingdom, David's boys, sitting there, he was normal. You did not know he was crippled. What a story of kindness based on the covenant that David had with Jonathan. Now let's draw a parallel. God sent his son to the world and on the cross made a covenant with man. The son of God was also the son of man. Jesus had a heavenly father and an earthly mother. He was the ultimate half-breed. <laughs> he was one of us. And so as the Bible said, he was the last Adam. As an Adam, as a man, he made a covenant on the cross for us. Taking our place, taking the penalty upon himself that was ours to receive because the wages of sin is what? So he took that upon himself and paid that wage. But also, in so doing, he made a covenant. In a couple of minutes, we're going to take communion. This is where we celebrate the Lord's table. And when the Lord instituted communion, he said, drink this cup, for this is my blood of the new covenant. He made a covenant with God for us. And based on that covenant, God chooses to show us kindness, not upon your worthiness. You and I have been crippled by sin. We're bound by fear. We're living in some no low debar, no name place. But God has chosen to show us kindness based on the promise made to his son through the covenant he made with Jesus. So based upon the righteousness of Jesus and the covenant that Jesus made with God for us on the cross, God shows us kindness. So maybe you and I are unworthy. Maybe we are crippled. Maybe we shouldn't be seen in royal courts. Maybe we're an embarrassment to an earthly king. But based on the covenant Jesus has with his Father, God wants to show you his kindness. Watch this.
Distribute the elements and just hold them in your hand to take communion in a few minutes together. take communion sitting down. Traditionally, we would take it on our knees or standing as a sign of honor and worship. But when the Lord instituted supper, they were sitting down and even laying down. 
They were relaxed in a position of receiving. Not trying to earn something. Being served the Last Supper by Jesus. He washed their feet. He was a servant at that meeting. He was being kind. And so while today you and I have been challenged to be kind, I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on the note of the kindness of the Lord because of the covenant that God made with God. You and I are secure. I love our logo. You can see it out on our sign and on our stationery and business cards. It's a G for Granberry, a G for Generations, and a C is inverted facing back to the G. Generations Church of Granberry. There's a cross in the middle of it. It stands for God. The C stands for Covenant. And on the cross, God made a covenant with God. And you and I receive the benefits of that. Spiritual cripples that we are to sit at the table, to be joint heirs with Christ, to be made one of the sons. What a blessing. You can't do anything to earn it. You just receive it. And if you'll receive it, it will become a tool that God will use to change us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for this bread. Let's just hold our bread up was broken for us, Lord. You were sinless. You were without yeast. You were pure. You were righteous. And you gave yourself for us. You entered into our brokenness, Lord, (laughs) so that we could be made whole. So in celebration of that, Lord, we receive this bread for what it stands for. In your kindness, you have made us whole. God is not a liar. He is not a man. His word cannot be broken. And yet to make his word more sure, he made a blood covenant for you and I. And sitting at his table, we receive the benefits of that. Our sins have been paid for. His life was given in place of ours. Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you showed to us in giving your life. And Lord, in celebration and remembrance of that, looking forward to the day when you too will drink the fruit of the vine with us, Lord, we receive this cup in the seated position of receiving, thanking you, Lord, for your kindness. Now, Lord, I pray that you would make us kind people kinder than we've been. And show us, Lord, what to do when we've been unkind. Lord, may we be quick to repent and not defend our lack of kindness. But, Lord, may we humble ourselves in Jesus' name.